My name is Philip. I don't want to uh, advertise any more than I need to my name. But I know these uh, bright, shiny things flash in the lights and they irritate crowds as you listen. So excuse me while I take my name off. I'll put it on later. It's, uh, in case you've forgotten, it's Philip. Yeah? And it's spelled with two L's, not one, because I'm not a Greek. Uh, Latin is uh, two L's, Greek is one L. And uh, I'm not a Greek, I've got two eyebrows, so... Uh... <laughs> oh, that's naughty, isn't it? <laughs> so I've got two... I said that to a Greek boy, in, uh, a Greek student in uh, South Africa, amongst a group of others who weren't Greek. I thought he was going to die of laughing. The others couldn't understand what he and I shared together. But having grown up amongst the Greeks in uh, Sydney, uh, the Greeks, I love ministering amongst the Greeks because of all the groups that I've ever dealt with, they have the biggest sense of humour. They really, and the thing they love laughing at most is Greeks. You know, the big fat Greek wedding, that is just so Greek. That is exactly what the Greeks are like. They are just so funny about themselves. And they love it. And uh, you have to get used to when you're ministering to the Greeks, to the fact that the men kiss each other and therefore kiss you uh, and on both cheeks and they don't shave very often. Uh, so you just have to get used to that. But once you get over your kind of homophobia and just cope with the fact that men kiss men, it's actually kind of nice. It's very warm and friendly and greeting. And well, furthermore, you're never late to church when it's a Greek church. You know, because it never runs on time. So, you know, lots of time you I won't go on with my Greek friends, but it's a great fun to be here. Well, now, friends, if you'll open your Bibles back there at 2 Timothy 2, verses 8 to 19, and your talk outline is this time on pages 16 and 17. And we thank God that we've uh, prayed already to understand his word. Uh, because that is what we need now. So each time we look at 2 Timothy, we see this same theme working through, that is, suffering for the gospel. For Paul, he wrote from prison where lonely, deserted by his friends and in chains, was suffering for the gospel. He wasn't suffering because he was a thief or a murderer or defrauding of people, but because he was preaching the cross of Christ, the message for all people, Jew and non-Jew alike. So in today's passage, again, we read of his suffering in verses 8 and 9. Remember, Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. It's a sad sight at the end of Paul's incredible life to see him chained up like a criminal. And yet, symbolically, it's appropriate For he was preaching the gospel of the crucified Messiah to a world hell-bent on its opposition to God. So where is he more likely to arrive at the end of his life than suffering for the gospel of the crucified Christ? And so he writes to his younger protege, Timothy, firstly, asking him to come and help him. Chapter 4, verse 13, if you look across to there, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Secondly, inviting him to come and share in the sufferings for Christ. So that verse I've mentioned, I think, each of the talks, verse 8 of chapter 1, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So, 
Do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join me in suffering for the gospel. Or chapter 2, verse 3, endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Thirdly, so firstly, come and help me. Secondly, come and share in the suffering. And thirdly, he assures him of the inevitability of suffering. Chapter 3, verse 12, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Friends, many people today wish to be comfortable Christians, wish to be thoroughly integrated into the culture of our wonderful Australian society and yet still be Christians. They wish to be accepted, approved and valued and wanted by the society around about us and still be Christian. They don't understand this saying of Paul in chapter 3 verse 12. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now the word godly does not mean goodly. That's an extra O we sometimes put into it. The word godly means relating to God. Now, in our relationship to God, we should be good, but that's a secondary thing. The essence of godly is our relationship to God. It's an unusual word. It goes about six or seven times in the letters of Paul to Timothy and not much else in the rest of the New Testament. But it's about the gospel. That is the nature of godliness. People do not persecute us for being good. They persecute us for being godly because if we're just good, well, we fit in with the society very nicely. But when we stand for the great message of the godliness that he appeared in the flesh, that he was vindicated by the spirit, that he was seen by angels, that he was proclaimed on the world, believed on by the nations, that he appeared in glory. If you preach that great message of godliness, well, the world will not want us. And if they do understand it, they don't believe it. So they're constantly accommodating their Christianity to the society around about them, either by rejecting or modifying the teachings of the Bible about, about miracles or about sexual immorality, or by keeping quiet about their faith in the Lord Jesus. When the matter comes up in normal conversation, they keep their mouth shut. Now let me give you two quick, very simple examples because life is made up of thousands and thousands of little examples. Rarely are we called upon to do something big and dramatic. It's usually just little that we do. You see, I spoke to a minister the other day who told me about joining a golf club. He went to the first tee looking for a group to play with so that he could get his handicap. He felt nervous and a little bit awkward about going up to a group of strangers, and he did, and he thanked them for letting him join them and apologised for his uh, expected rusty golf. And they said in that kind of typical Australian jocularity, no worries, mate, you can join us, just provided you're not one of those Bible-bashing Christians. Well, what do you say then? You know, you're going to spend the next four hours wandering around this course, conversation after conversation. How are you going to hide that you're a minister of the gospel, that you are exactly the one group of people that they're told that you're not allowed to be? <laughs> do you then say, oh, look, I can't play with you now because I'm a Bible-bashing Christian? What do you say? Well, it was a bizarre, silly thing for them to say, wasn't it? But it's very difficult, isn't it? Or the small boy who 
brought home from school an invitation to a birthday party. One of the real symbols of acceptance in the world of kindergarten is to be invited to the birthday parties. If you're not invited to the birthday parties, that's a real, that's, that's a downer, isn't it, of extreme. Here's the invitation to the Bible party because the, the birthday party is on Sunday morning, isn't it? During Sunday school time. Does our Christianity control our timetable? Or is our Christianity, our church membership, just a kind of default position where there's nothing else on where we'll go to church? Because that's the default. That's where you go when there's nothing to go to. The parent's attitude at this point tells the child everything about the importance of Christianity and church. But how hard it is to break a little boy's heart about the birthday party. See, it's not one big climactic moment of your life that will turn into a Hollywood movie. It's a thousand little moments in life where you have to stand up for the Lord Jesus Christ. And more and more, it's difficult to be a Christian in this society. When I was a little boy, nobody had birthday parties on Sunday morning. But today, everybody has birthday parties on Sunday morning except for us. Some Sunday mornings, thousands go on a fun run. The city to the surf is the one in Sydney. I don't know what your Melbourne one is, but I suppose you have it, do you? You're always imitating us. Um, <laughs> that was the only joke I've done against Melbourne, Sydney, isn't it? And, uh, even then, I'm sorry, I did it. But, I mean, it's a good thing. It's a great thing. It's a healthy thing. It's a community activity. But Christians have something more important to be engaged in on a Sunday morning than going on a fun run. One afternoon, I was, when I was the minister of the cathedral, there was on a Sunday a homosexual wedding celebrated on the cathedral square right in the middle of town. Of all the beautiful places of Sydney, and there are some beautiful places in Sydney, the square outside our cathedral is one of the most ugly, pebble creek kind of windswept, noisy place. There's only one reason that they had the mock wedding there, it was a protest against Christian values. You can't be a friend of the apostle without sharing in some of the suffering. You can't be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ without sharing in some of the suffering. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. We must take Jesus' invitation seriously. Our suffering, of course, is minerable compared to the others of the Middle East, ISIS. But the temptations to avoid discomfort are always present. But to suffering we are called because the gospel is the gospel of the suffering Lord Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus, Paul says in verse 8, remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. Jesus didn't come into the world to avoid suffering. He came into the world to suffer and die. Jesus didn't live in palaces of worldly pleasure. He lived in the trials and tribulations of everyday life. But also, more importantly, in the opposition and the hostility of all who raise their hands against God, as Psalm 2 predicted of the Messiah. Jesus didn't die peacefully in his old age, in his own bed, surrounded by his loved ones, gently increasing the morphine to cover the pain and agony. 
he died in the ignominious shame of the painful cross, rejected by men and abandoned by God. When Peter recognised him as the Christ, the offspring of David, Jesus started predicting his sufferings. And Peter took him aside and said, no, this shall not happen to you, and rebuked him. It won't happen. You are the Christ. You've come to rule the world. But Jesus heard in the voice of Peter none other than the words of Satan. The way to kingly rule was the way of the cross, was the way of suffering. And so he came to his kingly rule, for death could not hold him. He came to his kingly rule by his death, which was sufficient for the sins of the world. And thus God raised him. So that the gospel is about Jesus risen from the dead, in 2 verse 8. He is now alive. He's now ruling the universe from the right hand of God, where he sits in all glory and splendor having all the world coming under his feet. Jesus is not dead, a tragic figure of history. Jesus is alive, the victorious, glorious ruler of the present eternity. And he is in control of all the suffering that we endure. Let me give that line again. He is in control of all the suffering that we endure. He knows how we are hurt. For all the persecutions levelled at us are part of the persecutions that are levelled at him. When Paul, who was called Saul of Tarsus, was a persecutor of the Christians, he met the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus and Jesus' question for Saul was, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You could think that Saul would be thinking he's persecuting the Christians. You could think the Christians would think that they're being persecuted by Saul. But in fact, Saul was persecuting Jesus in persecuting his bride, the church. Saul didn't think he was persecuting Jesus. For Saul, Jesus was dead and buried, an embarrassing failed Messiah. Saul thought he was persecuting Christians. He was in fact, of course, persecuting the risen Messiah. In 2 Timothy, we see him changed from Saul, the persecutor of Christ, to Paul, the, the, the persecuted apostle of Christ. What an incredible change that is. For the resurrection message is, amongst other things, found in verse 9, that though we may be bound in chains... Yet the word of God is not bound. It's not chained. For God is working through his word. The gospel word of the crucified and resurrected Christ. God is at work in that world, saving his people, bringing them to eternal glory. My friends, it's an extraordinary thing. Did you know you have in your mouth the very power of God. The very power of the creator is in your mouth. He created the world by his word. He said, let there be, and there was. His word is so powerful 
And when you preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is his word that is coming out of your mouth. And that power that was at work in creating the world is the same power that is at work in saving the world. And it's coming out of your mouth. That is an extraordinary thing whereby Paul can say we are the fellow workers with God as the ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he thanks God when writing to the Thessalonians, saying we thank God that when you heard the word from us, you did not take it as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. It's extraordinary. I had no idea in the national training event when I spoke that there was a young John from Melbourne even in the crowd, let alone whatever impact it was having on his mind, his heart, that would change the order of his life. None whatsoever. I don't know who I'm talking to now. (laughs) You don't know what effect you're having when you speak the word of God in changing the whole orientation and direction of people's lives. It's an extraordinary privilege to bring the word of God to people. And whenever we proclaim the word of God, in letter, in conversation, around the dinner table, over the back fence, at the at work, at the, over the tea and coffee, whenever we are speaking the word of God, that power is at work in our mouths, changing the hearts of other people. And so the pattern of Christian living is to endure and reign. It's two things, endure the suffering and reign with Christ. So he says in verse 10, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He endured the beatings and the shipwrecks, the stonings and the imprisonments, the loneliness, misunderstandings, desertions, the sufferings for the gospel. He endured all these things for the lost, to save the lost, to bring them to the glorious reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. A person is never more like Christ than when they're laying down their lives to save others. For that is the very nature of Jesus. There's a fashion that comes out of America, therefore it's a fashion, of wearing a little bracelet around your wrist, WWJD written on it. If you have one at this point, pull your sleeve down as much as you can and later on maybe we won't notice because it really is silly. We, we don't need to know WWJD, what would Jesus do? We don't need to know that because we know what Jesus did. So don't ask me what Jesus would do. Let me tell you what Jesus did. This is a true saying and worthy of all men to be received. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's what Jesus did. And so if you ask, well, what should I do? It's exactly the same thing. (laughs) Go into the world to save sinners. You can't follow Jesus and ignore the lost. (laughs) For where Jesus went was to save the lost. So if I'm going to follow Jesus, if I'm going to be like Jesus, if I'm going to do what Jesus would do, I know what to do. Go into the world to save the lost. That's what he came to do. It doesn't mean necessarily go overseas. That doesn't mean not to go overseas. Jesus only went to the Jews. 
in order to save the world. You may go to your own people, but you will never be unconcerned about the lost. How can you be a follower of Jesus and be unconcerned about people around about you going to hell when Jesus himself gave his life to save his people from hell? And so he endured these things for the lost, to save them for the lost. That's what Paul did because he was following Jesus. The sacrificial compassion for the lost in all the world is a, is a fundamentally Christ-centered view of life. It's the life that we Christians live. We're not to live for our own comforts and our own pleasures, but to him who died for us and was raised again. So we must be willing to die for the salvation of others. It seems to me that the devil has two great methods of distracting us from this. Method one is persecution. Method two is seduction. Persecution is easy to see and understand because, well, it's in the New Testament and when you hear of what's happening to our Christian friends and brothers and sisters, North Benin's a very dangerous place to be. It's like North Nigeria, a very dangerous place to be. That, that's where the, um, can't think of the name of the group, kidnapped those girls. Yeah, Boko Haram, yeah. They, that, they're up in that part. They, they're extreme Muslim. That's a very dangerous place for our sister to be operating in and all the Christians who are there. That's, that persecution, that's easy to understand. Seduction, that's what we've got here in Australia and it's much harder to understand because it works. Everybody around about us, their standard of living is going up and up and it's very hard not to have your standard of living going up with them. And it's not wrong to want to be able to drive a nice car, to have a nice house, to have nice clothes, to eat nice food. to have There's nothing wrong in any one of those things, is there? And yet, when you put them all together as a package, they take you away from the Lord Jesus Christ and preaching the gospel to other people. We are distracted by our toys. We live in this wonderful world of the web. Marvellous world. What you need to get on your computer is a little timer to see how long you spend on silly websites and on Facebooks and on all those kinds of things. It would be horrifying to you. Television is a magnificent invention. How much time do we spend? The life we spend. One of my great laments of my life is the hours I have wasted looking at an idiot box which stands in the corner of the room looking at the idiot who looks at it. <laughs> it's very sad, isn't it? We get seduced by our comfort, by our wealth, by our prosperity, by our toys, by our possessions. Two saddest days in a man's life. The day he buys his first boat and the day he sells his first boat. But he will think they're the two happiest days in his life. The day he bought his first boat, that's terrific. And after having looked after it for four or five years and it sat out in the road rotting away, the day he sells it, it's even better. You see, our possessions possess us. That's one of the great traps. All the time it's happening to us. Our possessions possess us. 
And so seduction, persecution, they're the two ways Satan deals with us. And here in Australia, we're shifting between the two now as we Christians are being marginalised from our society in persecution. And therefore, we are all the more persuaded to stick with society because we are seduced into wanting all the goodies society is providing for us. But that is the trustworthy saying of verses 11 and 12. If we died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Now the byproducts of Christian life are enormous benefits and pleasures that we see we enjoy as Christians as a generality, not individuals, but as a generalisation, Christians enjoy better health, better education, better wealth, better government, better family life. That is a measurable thing that you can find and you can demonstrate. Duke University has done lots of studies about the fact that religious people live longer and have better health outcomes than people who don't have religion. There's a lot of social reasons for that. Uh, continuing to go to a public meeting, being involved in life beyond uh, the depressive kind of withdrawal from life that retirement is for most people, you know, teaching others. There's, a, there's physical reasons you can explain as to why Christians enjoy better health, but we do. We enjoy better family life. Better family life gives you better health results. Better family life gives you better wealth as well. If you want to ruin your divorce, get div- ruin your wealth, get divorced. Divorce destroys family income. There's a whole range of reasons why. You can explain it sociologically, but the truth is the truth. Christians enjoy better health, better education, better wealth, better... We're the people who invented schools. We're the people who invented everybody going to school. You know, that the government is now kicking Christians out of school is really kind of in your face. It's ridiculous because actually... It was the Christians who invented the education system. It was the Christians who told the government that we have to have universal education. And now Christians aren't allowed into the education system. Such is the nature of the wickedness of our world that we're in. But we enjoy. Uh, Some years ago, 6% of Australians had university graduates. This is the 1990s. 6% of Australians had university uh, qualifications and 26% of church members had university qualifications. We enjoy better education. We've always been that because we're people of the book. We're people of discussion. Here you are having a lovely... Finally, the sun's come out. What are you doing? Sitting down listening to me. (laughs) Thinking. Some of you aren't. I can see a couple snoozing, but (laughs) thinking, you see. We're the people of the mind, the people of education and of understanding and discussion as you're going to enter into But the main core business of Christian life is none of those things. It's following the crucified Lord of glory in suffering for the salvation of others. Those things, you see, are the byproducts of Christianity, not the substance of Christianity. That's why we give our money for the preaching of the gospel. That's why we give our children to the cause of world mission. That's why we give our time and our energy to serve others. That's why we risk relationships and social ostracism to speak the word of the gospel to a society that doesn't want to hear it. We know that by dying with Christ, enduring with Christ now in this lifetime, we will live and reign with Christ in the future. But there's the flip side to it. But that introduces us to the temptations of a gospel ministry. But that's the 
rest of the trustworthy saying in verses 12 and 13, if we disown him, he will disown us. If we're faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Surely endurance will find glory, but remember, denial will find denial. For Jesus himself warned us, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels and the Lord Jesus will be faithful to his words. If we are faithless, he will continue to be faithful. So not only will suffering and endurance find good outcome, but denial and faithlessness will be a disaster for us. Let me show you three interrelated temptations to such faithless behaviour. Firstly, there is being quarrelsomeness in verse 14. Keep reminding them these things. Warn them before God against quarrelling about words. It's of no value. Only ruins those who listen. See, we are the people of the word but it is easy to become pedantic about words. Splitting straws, as we say. Following out the details of words to such a, the detailed concern that you actually miss the point of what the whole sentence is about. Because we're people of the word, we can be tempted to, in our attempt to be accurate, to strain out the mat and swallow the camel, as Jesus made fun of the Pharisees. We can pay so much attention to the minutiae that we fail to see the big picture. But add to that the very human habit of being quarrelsome and we have a recipe for disaster. Rather, we must present the word of God as it was spoken, as it was written. So the second way of temptation is to distort the word of God, to wrongly handle it. Now, this can be part of our quarrelsome nitpicking or in our failure of conscience before God to be wrongly handling the word of God, speaking irreverently of him and swerving from the truth. Hymenaeus and Philetus are named here by the apostle as men who have done this in verse 18, saying that there is no resurrection, or rather that the resurrection has already taken place. And it's so easy, thirdly then, to wander from the truth. And in so doing, upsetting the faith of some, spreading falsehood like gossiping gangrene. In the mid-20th century, when materialistic atheism ruled the universities with an iron fist, before post-modernity kind of came in and rattled them, the denial of the supernatural, the denial of the miraculous was mandatory in nearly all academic theology and church circles even. Consequently, some who wanted to be intellectually respectable theologians recast Christianity without miracles. It's ridiculous. You can't do that. It's an impossible venture to enter on. You chop the miracles out of the gospel, you'll only have confetti left. Especially, of course, you can't get rid of the great miracle of the resurrection and still have the gospel. You can't just remove them from the text and so what they do is they play word games, saying, yes, I believe in the resurrection, but not the physical resurrection, 
not actually from the grave. The, the body would still be there if we went to the right tomb. Rather, the point of the resurrection mythology, I believe in the myth of the resurrection. When the New Testament uses the myth five times, use the word myths five times in every occasion negatively. Peter says we do not follow myths. <laughs> it's always negative. There were lots of myths in the ancient world, but Christianity was anti-mythological. But in the middle 20th century, the great theologians of Germany said, we've got to demythologize the Bible. You can't demythologize an anti-mythological book. It was ridiculous. But of course, you couldn't get a PhD in Germany unless you were willing to do it. Such was the tyranny and censorship of the academy. So by quarrelling about words, even words like resurrection, they were able to be ashamed of the gospel in front of their academic peers and so wrongly handle the word of God and spread falsehood, upsetting the faith of many and emptying the state churches around the world. But the great news of the gospel is the certainty of victory. We will overcome because nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We will overcome because the Christ who died for us has risen from the grave to rule the universe and return again to judge the living and the dead. We will overcome because if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure our suffering here in this world with him, we will also reign with him. God knows who are his people. So don't be tempted to go with the crowd, for God's judgment will come, and we must be found not in the tents of wickedness, but in the household of God. So stand up for what you believe. Thank you for the children's talk, trying to get the children to learn to stand up for what you believe. Stand up for what you believe. Stand clear of those who would believe otherwise. A little girl came to me once and said she, she wasn't sure anymore. She was in sixth class. She wasn't sure anymore that she really wanted to be a Christian. And I said, why is that? She said, they keep calling me a goody-goody. And I said, oh, you poor dear. What would, what would you like to be, a baddie-baddie? And she said, oh, I don't want to be that. And I said, well, don't worry about what they say to you. And she continues Christian to this day 30 years later. Stand straightforwardly for the truth against the world, against the currents of the world. Remember, even a dead dog can swim with the current. You have to be alive to swim against it. And we have been born again, not to be dead dogs going along with the flotsam and jetsam of this dreadful world, but we are alive swimming against it and proclaiming there is another way if we endure with him, we will reign with him. And so we must suffer whatever the world throws at us, knowing that we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered everything for salvation, who died as our representative and our substitute, experiencing the very wrath of God in our place for us. But remember even more, so sufficiently did he pay the price that he's risen from the dead and now lives and rules and will come one day to take us to be with him forever 
if we endure with him, we will reign with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for everything that you give us, but above all for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his death on our behalf and his resurrection as well. We thank you, Father, that he did indeed turn aside your wrath, for he did indeed pay the penalty for our sin. We thank you, Father, that he was not worried by the shame of the cross, but bore that for us. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would give to us such an outpouring of your spirit that we will ever stand for him and with him. We will ever endure the sufferings of this world. We will not be deceived by the seductions of this world or fearful of the persecutions of the world, but with your spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. We will continue faithful to the Lord Jesus, enduring the suffering and the shame that we may give, you may give to us so that we may with him reign forever in your glory. And we pray for this and for each other in Jesus' name. Amen.